0: Hi and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 168, my guest is Lisa Nugget from Blockstream, when we're talking about Lightning Network channels, Sea Lightning and dual funded channels. This show is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges with 24-7 support, easy sign up, they've got low fees, they've got high trading volume They've got a leading security team in Kraken Security Labs, and they've also got Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design. They've had a bunch of webinars and content provided by my friend Pierre Richard to go and check those out also. Kraken also offer an OTC desk if you're looking for more private and personalized service for large block trades. Kraken also provide CryptoWatch, a popular charting and trading terminal, and they recently got a stock-to-flow indicator as inspired by Plan B, so go and check that out. Go and sign up at kraken.com. Next up is Unchained Capital, Bitcoin Financial Services. You know I love these guys, I'm a big fan of their work, and they've got some big updates coming on Caravan, which I had a sneak peek of, so keep an eye out for that unchained capital offer vaults you can set up a multi-signature two of three product it's easy to set up it's a web interface you can use trezor and ledger and cold card is coming soon and if you need liquidity if you need a loan you can get usd by putting up bitcoin as collateral it's stored on chain it's never re-hypothecated i'm really impressed with unchained go and check them out they've got incredible content on their blog and open source materials such as Hermit and Caravan. Go and sign up at unchained-capital.com Next is Swan Bitcoin. If you want to automatically stack Bitcoins in the US and you want to do it regularly without manual processing, go to swanbitcoin.com. You can link any major US bank account via ACH and auto-buy weekly or monthly. They are the cheapest auto dollar cost averaging service available and they have a focus on education and Bitcoin advocacy. They've got some awesome articles on their blog, and I recently did an interview with CEO and co-founder Corey Clipston. Go and check it out. I'm involved as an advisor with a small equity stake also. So go to swanbitcoin.com for auto Bitcoin stacking. Next up is the Cypher Wheel by CypherSafe. Are you considering your backups? Have you thought about what would happen if you were to lose your hardware wallet or to lose your seed? Well, you want to make sure your BIP39 seed is backed up. Make sure it's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident. The Cypher wheel is a steel backup product. It's a wheel shape. It's got uh, plates that cover the words of your seed, and it's also got a padlock tamper evident seal, so you know if it's been opened. Make sure you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs, and think about your backups and recovery. Orders going out, go and check it out at cyphersafe.io. Here's my interview with Lisa. Lisa, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me on.
0: So Lisa, I saw you tweeted out about uh, wanting to talk about Lightning cryptographic primitives and some of the stuff. Obviously, you're working on a a range of things uh, at Blockstream on the Elements project, working on C-Lightning and the Lightning spec and stuff. Um, So can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into being a Lightning developer?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So I actually got into Bitcoin man i'm gonna say like two years ago now um i ended up well yeah i guess bitcoin and then lightning um i i got into i got into bitcoin because i ended up getting a job at square working on their cash team on the ba- bitcoin like backend. um i was kind of in this process of transitioning away from being an android developer um and I knew Java, which is what the Square Cash backend is all written in. And I had some good friends who worked on the Android team there. So I wanted to go work with them. Um, And one of the backend roles that they had available just so happened to be on the team that was supporting the custody wallet that runs behind Square Cash. Um, So yeah, I I got on, that was like my first ever like Bitcoin job. Um, And then while I was there, I like picked up a book on Bitcoin. I think it's, I always get this wrong. Andreas Antonopoulos, I believe is his name. He has a great book called Mastering Bitcoin um, that I recommend to anyone who's interested in learning about how Bitcoin works. That would be the one. Um, And... Yeah, so I like, you know, I I read that and got like super, I just got super excited about how cool Bitcoin is. Like the engineering, like parts and pieces that go into like making Bitcoin as a system work, I just thought were like incredibly beautiful and cool. Um, And I like how Bitcoin is like super like, it's like very multi-layered, if that makes sense. Um, Because there's a lot of stuff going on at like, so there's like cryptography, and then there's system engineering, and then there's like consensus protocols that Bitcoin is really like cutting edge new new stuff on. And then you can layer on top of that incentive design, which is kind of veers into like the economic um, and market kind of like, you know, like how there's like the mining game, so to speak. So like incentives for what miners have and then fees game. So there's just like a lot of stuff going on in Bitcoin. So I like very much like fell in love with how cool and interesting it is. Um, and then – The way that I got into lightning stuff is I had this like kind of little project that I wanted to like, I was doing some like light research into, um, basically when I was reading, um, Antonopoulos' book, like the mastering Bitcoin, I realized that the, there's, it's not even really a bug. It won't be a problem until like 2130 something, which is like over a hundred years from now. Um. But at some point, the header field in the block header, there's, like, a timestamp. And at some point in the next century, that will, like, no longer be big enough. Um, And so it kind of became this, like, fun entry point into, like, figuring out how Bitcoin gets updated. Um, It's like, okay, so, like, if you wanted to make it such that this, like, Bitcoin header problem isn't a problem... um, in 2135 or whatever um (laughs) uh what would you need to do to change bitcoin to like make it not a problem right um so this was like the research project that i set myself out on um and this was in within like two months of like reading the book and like being like oh bitcoin's cool and i was like oh well what would i do to like change it or like fix this bug right um and so that kind of led me on like this journey of like you know reading the white paper and then reading some of the resources in the white paper like the footnote stuff i don't know exactly what the footnotes are called references yeah yeah yep. which sort of like led to this process of reading through bips and then some reason or another i happened across like Rusty Russell's email um in one of the bips um and it was actually a bip that had three authors i like googled each of them and managed to find Rusty's blog and so he was the one i decided i was going to send my questions to um about the process of like it was basically like hey like i found this like sort of bug in bitcoin like i know it's not really a bug but it's kind of an interesting like thought experiment whatever and so i sent them like all my questions or like is anyone looking into this like how would you go about like trying to update it or whatever um and you know send it off into the ether and this was within me starting like at square within like a month or two of starting a square um and then you know i got busy doing other things and rusty didn't write me back so i like you know like got into like so working on a um working on a custody wallet there's like the aspect of working on um bitcoin so it's good to understand how bitcoin works because your software interacts with bitcoin as an entity but anytime you work on a large software project there's also learning how that project works in and of itself so um you know it was like get on the job learn how bitcoin works sort of yeah in like a month no that would, took a lot longer than that but it was like okay like here's kind of how bitcoin is and then rest of the job was like okay now here's how we want to change our system or wallet to do this thing i was working on i was working on enabling bitcoin deposits at square for a while um that was like my project and uh And so, like, you have to re-pipe a lot of the plumbing in order to make that happen. Um, So then, like, the rest of my time, basically, at Square was, like, figuring out how to, like, change the Square software and didn't have a lot to do with, like, Bitcoin itself. Um, But I sent this email to Rusty and then, like, three months later, out of nowhere, he's like, oh, yeah, great question. Um, Here's some other stuff you can look at. I don't know of anyone working on this Um, here. Like, you should talk to Peter Willa about like this project and like, okay, cool. Like, I don't know who any of these people are. I should put that out there. I have no clue what I have just done. Like I have sent a single email from like, you know, like, okay, cool. Um, Yeah. So then Peter and I like talk a little bit about like different approaches to how you could prevent it from rolling over. And I think the whole thing ended with like, great, let me like write some tests and I'll get back to you. Mind you, I've never run a C++ project. I don't really know that much about C++, but I was like, sure, I can like download Bitcoin and like write some tests. How hard could that be? Um, I didn't end up doing that. I got very distracted. But Rusty was like, oh, you're interesting. Like we're hiring for this Lightning developer role. Would you like to apply to be a Lightning developer? And um, I was very polite. I wrote him back a very long email that was like, here are all the reasons I am not a good fit for this role. Um, <laughs> like also I just started a new job <laughs> like but um you know so I sent him this like long email I was like hey really glad you think I would be an interesting person to have on your team that's very flattering but like uh I don't know if that works for either of us um but he's like okay well, just like interview anyways and I was like okay like I will let you tell me no if that's what you want to do like that's fine it sounds like an awesome job if I get it great but you know like yeah, sure. Uh, but they, they they ended up offering me the job. So that's how I ended up at Blackstream as like a lightning developer, so, like fell over backwards into it, kind of. Um,
0: Very cool. And you work remotely as well, because obviously Rusty is uh, d- down in Adelaide. You're in the US, in Texas, and Christian's over in Switzerland. How do you guys make that work with, you know, the time zones and everything?
1: You know, I'm going to be honest, it hasn't really been a problem. Um, at least not for me, like, um, I think part of it is that both Rusty and Christian are really good about responding to stuff really quickly. Um, I think all of us are. So, you know, it's, if someone needs a review on a thing or wants to like get stuff moved forward, it's really easy to reach out to one of them. Um, the other thing is like, as you mentioned, we're really far apart, but that means we also get full round the clock coverage. Um, so there's always someone else around um either christian or rusty <laughs> like,
0: uh, i see yeah yeah i guess because in your afternoon it would be the morning for rusty and yeah yeah
1: my morning is christian's evening and afternoon so there's always someone around to ask stuff too so it actually like i think geographically it actually like worked out and i think the fact that we're all pretty far apart is actually very helpful too because there's no expectation that everyone will be able to like kind of be all at the same place at the same time. Or like, there's not like half the team is all in Texas and always working on stuff and everyone else is perpetually left out. Like none of that happens because everyone is far away. So, um, I also think it really helps us be a very, like, um, like I think sea lightning has a very international contributor, like baseline, um, uh, are two, like, other big contributors. Um, I think one lives somewhere in, like, the South Pacific and then another is in France. Um, we've got a couple of people in um, in Europe who contribute pretty frequently. Um, yeah, I like to joke. I feel like I'm, like... Sometimes I feel like I'm, like, the only, like, North American representative. I don't think that's entirely true, but it's kind of fun. Um,
0: so, look, let's get into some of the lightning stuff. So, you were... I guess when we're talking about Lightning, I think most of the listeners are reasonably familiar with how Lightning works. You know, you open up your channels, you become part of this network. Uh, but what's actually underlying some of that? What's some of the cryptography that's required yeah. to make this all work?
1: So it's like, um, so I think like the angle that I was interested or have been thinking about when I tweeted, I wasn't necessarily the cryptography, which is definitely a part of it, but it's more the um, kind of just like the... the the way that the Bitcoin – so, well, okay. I'm trying to figure out where I should start with this. So the, the thing that I think is really interesting about Lightning and that I find really cool um, is the architecture of the um, contracts that are used to make Lightning payments. So for – I'm sure most people are fairly familiar with Lightning and how that works. But for those who aren't, um, when, a, when a Lightning payment gets made um, – you're exchanging Bitcoin transactions that both parties have signed. So they're valid Bitcoin transactions. Um, The only difference between Lightning and like a normal Bitcoin payment is that the Lightning transactions, Bitcoin transactions, you don't actually send to the Bitcoin blockchain. You hold on to them. And this whole, they just become like a promise though that at any point you could go to the blockchain and publish it and get the money out and that promise or like that guarantee that the transaction you hold is valid at any point you choose to publish it, um, is what makes like the lightning kind of trust model work um because you don't have to trust that you'll get paid you have the ability to get paid on chain at any time um and so like money in lightning channels um actually like money in lightning channels like kind of like the broad way that it works when you open a channel you're creating a pool of money with the other person in the channel it's just you can only have two people in this pool um it's actually kind of a fun analogy i can make between how lightning works and liquid works because they're very similar but have like kind of a different accounting metric and number of participants in the pools but um yeah so it's really cool because you get um so two people come together and decide to pool their Bitcoin resources. And so in Bitcoin, like what does that look like? How do you pool resources in Bitcoin? Right? Um, you do that through contracts. So you write a contract, a Bitcoin like contract um, in the smart contract language. I don't think it's I don't know how you talk about it, but like um, smart contract language called script, which is the Bitcoin's like contract language um, that we have currently, um, and. Uh, That contract is such that the only way that that money can be spent is if you have a signature from each party to that pool of money, right? Um, These are called multi-sig transactions. I'm sure you've heard of like multi-sig transactions, right? Um, Except this is specifically like a two of two multi-sig transaction, which means that both parties have to agree on how that money is being spent. And the way that you agree is by signing a transaction that has outputs that pays money to you and the other party, basically. Um, And then
0: there's the fallback condition, right?
1: Yeah. So this is what I got kind of excited about. So the whole backstory to this thing is that I've been working on adding, um, I'm going to call them like accounting primitives to Sea Lightning. So annotating Sea Lightning such that when you run it, you get really fine grained accounting details. Um, I was really hoping my PR would make this last we j- we're doing a release. we just cut the RC the first release candidate for 8.2 today and I was hoping we would make it in, but it didn't quite for reasons, but it'll be there in the next release. Um, but it's really fun. so like part of having to annotate the Sea Lightning code base and the cool thing so like the cool things that that'll let you do is like, okay, how much did I pay in chain fees for this? channel and you'll be able to answer those kinds of questions. Um, or Like what were my routing, how much did I make in routing fees? Um, like where's my capital allocated? Like you could get like a balance sheet basically. So like basically it's generating the data that you would need so that you could have a like balance sheet of where all your money is currently in your like node basically, um, which is cool. So it's kind of like building this like kind of nice like ledger of movements of money through a Sea Lightning um, node. But in order to do that, you have to understand where all the money is and all the places it can end up and all the edge cases in which you end up going to chain and where the transaction fees go and stuff. Um, So one thing that I thought was really interesting is like this. So the hard part about the really hard part with accounting and seal and lightning payments and lightning channels just in general is the failure case. Right. Um, It's not necessarily much like the failure case. Like, so, so there's like, there's like different tiers of how a channel gets closed. So, you know, you open a channel with another party which means that both of you agree to put money into a Bitcoin contract. And then that contract goes to chain and is like mined and becomes official, like Canon, right? Like the
0: funding transaction. Yeah.
1: And that is like public and you tell people where it is. They can look it up and confirm how much money is in that channel. Um, It doesn't tell you how much is in each party's balance, but it tells you the capacity of that channel. Right. And that lets you helps that helps you make routing decisions. When you're looking at all the different routes, you know what the total capacity is. Um, anyways that's like a whole different conversation but um, the like yeah, so you have like this you have this transaction and then at some point you want to get your money out of the tra- out of it right and so we call that the closing transaction. Um, there's like uh three yeah there's three different types of closing transactions that you can have um, there's the happy case, which is like we call it the mutual close and that is where you and your your buddy your channel partner, um that's in the shared pool with you um are both online and both of you are still talking to each other <laughs> <laughs> like, like still friends and you both agree about how much money each person gets and you both agree how much fees you're going to pay for this closing transaction right because there's like a fee rate um which change, you know, what a good fee rate is changes depending on how long you want to wait for it to get confirmed. So anyways, you, you come to an agreement about how the money in this channel is split up and how much you're paying to get it on chain. That's called the mutual close, which makes sense. You mutually agree to close it. And those transactions are pretty simple. You There's like a back and forth exchange where you figure out what the fee rate is. Um, and then You both exchange signatures once you've agreed what the fee rate is and what the outputs look like. You exchange signatures and then one or both of you attempt to broadcast it to chain and then done. You're like over. It's done. The money's back and you're control fully now, right? Okay. So that's like pool exit one mutually. Um, (laughs) Pool exit two is called unilateral. And that means that like the other side fell off the edge of the earth and you can't send money because you need them to be online to sign new transactions, right? Like this like relationship that you have requires both of you to be in communication and available to make updates to the balances so that money can move through it. Um, but if for some reason they stop responding or they've fallen offline, um, you don't, your money is stuck in that pool, right? You need their agreement generally to get your money out. So you are, part of starting a a channel is you always have a valid transaction that spends the funding transaction. And um, you just publish the one that you have. The last version that had like, maybe I have like, I don't know, 50,000 sats in the channel and you have 70,000 sats. And that was where we last left it. Um, I have a copy of that transaction that pays out to me 50,000 stats and then there's another output in that transaction that pays out to you 70,000 stats. Um, and then so I just like publish that to chain, right. And it goes out, I didn't talk to you about it. We didn't agree on what the fee rate is. Maybe we signed it three months ago because that was the last time money moved through the channel and the fee rate's super outdated. Um, so it takes forever to get mined and there's like so there's a lot of kind of problems around. These, these are – so this these transactions um, – so this, this strategy of closing without talking to you to get, like, an updated one is called a unilateral close. Um, the transaction that I'm publishing is actually something called a commitment transaction. Um, I don't know if that's important, but maybe maybe that'll ring some bells for some people. So a unilateral close is a publishing of a commitment transaction that you have. Um, and there's actually kind of a um, – these are like way more complicated, and this is where like the cool and interesting architecting of like Bitcoin scripts comes into play. Is in how these um, commitment slash the unilateral close transactions have been um, architected, so to speak. Um, and what's cool about them is that um, there's like the the third case. So I said there's like three cases. Um, the third case is actually. The same as a unilateral closed transaction, and that someone is publishing a comm- old a commitment transaction that they have. Um, the only difference between a unilateral and like a penalty case is that they're publishing an old version. It's like an old commitment transaction, um, and this has to do with like how Lightning the balance update is that I sign a new transaction and then send you a new transaction. So every time that money moves through the channel, we get a new. Um, We get a new commitment transaction that records the latest balance information for that channel. Um, If I go back, though, and I find one where I actually have 100,000 sats and you only have, whatever, 30,000 sats, right? But it's like three commitment transactions ago. And then I paid you some stuff out. Maybe we went and got lunch or coffee and I owed you some money. And so like current state, you have 70K, but pack in the past, I used to have 100K, so I want to... Try and get that and money. Cheat
0: me. Yeah, yeah, I
1: want to cheat you, man. I want. I don't know. I want the money. Um. So I will publish. Maybe it's an accident. To this, we're trying to make it. You know. Anyway, sometimes accidents happen. But, um, if I, for some reason, publish an old commitment transaction, and it's old because there are like new versions have been issued, sort of, or we've like signed new versions. Um, uh, there are special cases built into that transaction. That let you, my channel partner, come along and take all of the money out of the channel in the pool and pay it out to yourself. Um, and there's there's a couple ways that that happens. Like, so these 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 commitment transactions that you use for they end up being used in unilateral or penalty close cases. Um, the they have like time locks. They have like time locks built into yeah. them. Such that, and the reason for the time lock is so that um, you have time to see what I've done, publish yep. a transaction, and come along with the secret revocation key, as we call it, and take the money out before I have time to spend it in a second transaction and actually kind of claw it back for myself. Um, so, yeah, so they're like commitment transactions are, are they bigger? I guess this, no, they're not any bigger. Anyways, it's like, are they? I don't think they're bigger than mutual closes. They're way more complicated though. Um, So that's like, right, okay.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's the, uh, let me just kind of summarize that and make sure all listeners can follow along and also confirm my understanding is correct, right? So hypothetically, you and I set up a channel together. Mm. When we set that up, that was a funding transaction. That is a two of two multi-signature, but with this fallback pathway where if one of us goes offline, the other one has a pre-signed, commitment transaction, but not yet broadcast, that they may broadcast to the chain at any point. Exactly. And then the the mutual close scenario is where we agree we're both online, we're saying, yep, this is the correct truth of the world or this is the correct state of our channel, we're gonna close it this way. In the, uh, let's say one of us went offline, then the other one has the pre-signed commitment transaction that they may broadcast to take to claim the money back on chain. And then the final one is the justice transaction or the bridge remedy transaction, where one of us is trying to cheat the other, or one of us had a failure in our backups or whatever. And uh, you can, you uh, one of our nodes was watching the chain and saw, oh hey, I'm being cheated. Mm-hmm. Let me broadcast my justice transaction and set the balance correct or set the set the record correctly rather yeah. than let this other guy's uh fake or, or wrong commitment transaction be the one that gets confirmed into the bitcoin blockchain would you say that's kind of broadly the right understanding there
1: yeah except so when you're saying so i think the only thing i would like kind of want to maybe clear up a bit is um so the the cheat penalty thing is still a commitment transaction. It's just not yes. the most recent one, right? Um, yes. So it's kind of a similar thing to the, the most – if you publish the most recent one, that's called like – that's the unilateral case. If you publish the not most recent one, then you end up in like Badlands where like, yes, then your peer would publish, which you were calling the justice transaction. Um, but that actually happens after I've messed up and sent the um, –
0: Right. You tried to send an old commitment uh, right, transaction? I did. I
1: succeeded in sending an old commitment yeah. to Chain. Um, the thing about the justice transaction, though, and so this is actually an interesting difference between the current way that um, Lightning channels work. I believe they're called Poon Dryja channels is what we've yeah. just described. There's a, a new update proposal um, that Lalu, Christian, and Rusty, I think they're called, it's called L2,
0: l2 (laughs) channels yeah
1: yeah l2 channels and so l2 channels um actually let you publish a new transaction that actually corrects the state on chain so if i publish my 100k transaction you would just have to you would have to publish a transaction but the transaction you're publishing updates um your updates the balance on chain, so to speak. So there's no actual penalty in L2 channels. It's just the guarantee that the final state is correct. You'll always be able to get to the final correct state. Um, And that requires some fancy new script stuff, which we don't have currently, which we're kind of, so that like is sort of behind that. Um, The thing about penalty transactions is I actually lose all of my money. Um, So it's not like justice restoring justice and making it back to what everyone had agreed on the current state is, right? It's actually justice, like, no, no, we're penalizing you. You are, like, losing everything, like, game over, like, nice try. Yeah, Um, which is interesting. Anyways. Yeah.
0: So I guess the next point then, let's talk a little bit from, you were mentioning around accounting. So I guess from an accounting point of view, we're thinking, okay, so I've got my... Balance sheet, you might think of it, like I've got, you know, these are the channels that I've got open. But mm-hmm. then you might also think more like, okay, what's my income statement? What is the fee revenue and so on? So maybe let's just start with the balance sheet or kind of the what channels do I have open? Uh from a C Lightning point of view, what does that look like when you say have 10 channels open? And, you know, can you explain a little bit around that part?
1: Yeah. Um Yeah, and actually I think it would also be I think so. So I think another interesting thing to talk about with accounting is now that we've kind of talked about how penalty transactions work is, um, it's actually an interesting question of how you treat the accounting around penalties, but we can get there like a little later. Um, So I haven't actually, so the work I've been doing is actually kind of like, I would almost classify it as like an annotation thing. So it's basically like when you build, okay, so like in accounting, when you have like your income versus your balance sheet, right, or cash flow statement, um, those are all like roll-ups of a lot of underlying data, right? So like in general accounting, like you have your journal, like your double entry ledgers and stuff. Um, you have your credits and you have your debits. Um, and every single transaction that gets made usually has like a you put an entry in two columns so that your whole thing kind of like weirdly balances out. Um so all of that, like so in accounting, there's like all this transaction level data, right? That's like, oh, I bought lunch. That's an expense or, oh, we invested in some OpEx or CapEx by buying this machine and then we're going to like do the depreciation over like five years or 10 years, whatever, depending. Anyways, there's rules and accounting things. Um, but all of your accounting book data is the line by line transactions of what happened and where you spent your money. So the project I've been working on is to create that ledger for a lightning node and um, I still need to work on (laughs) to be done project that is like the actual plugin then that sits on top of that, that um, that would give you these balance sheet and um, cash flow statements about your node. So that, but like you need all this like annotation work done. This is the
0: building block. Exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, But it'll be like, I don't know how easy it should be pretty easy though. Once you have all that data. Um, which is cool because then you will be able to see like where all your money and stuff is. Um,
0: Yeah. I mean, as a quick example, I'm just thinking now. So for example, let's say I open a channel with you for (laughs) whatever, 5 million sets. Right. Yeah. And um, I pay an on-chain fee for -hmm. that. Yeah. Right. And so that would go into the cash flow statement, right. To say, oh, Stefan incurred an expense to open this channel Mm -hmm. with Lisa. Yeah. Uh, And then the, you know, then you would start thinking, okay, this is the channel I have open. And then once payments actually start routing through mm-hmm. that channel between you and me, or let's say I, someone is multi-hop routing through me to mm-hmm. you, et cetera, and I'm charging fees and so on, um, or you're charging me a fee or whatever, then those components also have to get um, added, yeah, ca- counted together um, and built up so that I can start building my accounting position on. Right. What was my income?
1: Exactly. Yeah. And it gives you a good idea of where you deployed capital in your channels is earning your revenues. Um, there's actually like, so one of the kind of like difficulties with the ledger data that I've, I've built, um, not a difficulty, but something that I think I'm going to have to think about a bit when I'm building like the next layer up, like the view side of it that gives you all this good information is um, it's actually like how you count for routing fees is actually really interesting. Um, and the reason that it is, like, so the reason that accounting fees are like, or accounting for routing fees are interesting is because they don't happen in a single channel. The view of how much money you've made is actually the difference between two channels. So you make money, which is, so like when, so let's say like I'm sitting in the middle of a transaction and you're routing money through me to someone else, like over here. Um, you're going to pay me, and let's say you're paying them like, I don't know, a thousand sats. I'm going to make 10 sats in routing fees. I don't know what percent. That's like 1%. Yeah, 1% routing fees. Okay, cool. Um, So you will pay me 1,010 sats, right? And then I will pay your friend 1,000 sats. So on a ledger basis, we're just counting money movements. So in the ledger, all that you will see is 1,010 in and 1,000 out. The routing fee information, like the routing gain or like – Money that I have made,
0: your profit, yeah,
1: is the difference between those two balances, right? So that's not actually so. Like at least in the accounting stuff that I've like that I wrote into Sea Lightning, we're capturing just the movements because um, that's like more. I don't know that that because that's the actual transaction that happened, right? Like the actual transaction that happened is that you sent me a thousand and ten, and then I sent a thousand here. So that's how like the channel balances then, right? Is it a thousand and ten moved here, and then a thousand went there? Um, But the difference between those two is the routing fee that I've gained, the 10 sats. So so this like next layer piece that I'm going to have to write is going to have to take that into account. The cool thing. So like the interesting thing about that then is that um, routing fees aren't a it's not a single channel that earns you routing fees so much as like channel pairs, which is cool. And I haven't figured out exactly how to represent that. Um, But I think there's some interesting stuff you'll be able to do to kind of figure out what are the good, like what are which routing pairs or which channel is more making you more money than the other, right? So it's like deploying your capital into channels is more of a um, network strategy than it is like a single channel. Though it might be a single channel that connects to highly connected nodes or something, right? But
0: yeah. Right. And I guess if you are in a, I guess, the hypothetical node that only has one channel, mm. uh, the only then you're only, I guess, you're only paying fees or, I guess, receiving if somebody you is get, paying you, you right? You won't
1: get routing fees, though, because you can't route if you only have a single thing.
0: Uh, okay. So, hypothetically, let's say you and I have a channel and I only have one channel with you, but mm-hmm. you've got other channels elsewhere. Right. Um, then it only means i can't receive i'm not making any routing fees all i'm i'm only ever paying routing fees in that example
1: exactly right? yes
0: yeah um and so another point i'm curious to ask your thoughts on i'm sure you're aware of rtl now i did an interview for listeners earlier with suheb uh, rtl is a dashboard that supports both lnd and c lightning and i noticed they have a routing fee report mm-hmm. as well so you can say oh, okay i made 10 sats this day or this month um how does what you're doing compare with what they are doing
1: yeah so c lightning already has c lightning accounts for routing fees for you already um and so if you have a c lightning node i can't remember exactly which i think it's like list forwards is the command um but it's possible to get a report out of c lightning that tells you all the routing money that you've made um I think it's fine grained enough that you could do the channel analysis as you would want. Um, So like, I think that that's like, so my, I'm trying to say like, yeah, that's, that's information that we're already providing to people and they can already do interesting and cool stuff. Like if all you care about is like, but that's only if all you care about is routing profits. Right. So the, the sort of, stuff that I've been writing like the ledger stuff is more of like a I need to see my books like I need to see where my money is like on a and I need to see where it's moving and it's it's more of a um, it's more of an audit level information system than the um, so like when you think about like data and information flows through a system like sea lightning or like anything, um, there's two kind of views that you can kind of take on it. Um, there's like one that's like present state and kind of keeping, I guess we sort of, well, that's sort of, there's like present state. Right. And so like sea lightning keeps track of the current channel balances. Um, I don't think we keep like the historical channel balances though. Right. Like, so that's, you lose a lot of data about what the, the interactions and transactions have been. Um, any invoices that you have coming in, we save them for a certain time, but at some point you're probably going to clear them out, right? It's like Sea Lightning as a system is not meant to be a historical record of where all the money has gone and where it's moved. Um, so the system that I've built is a way that it'll export all of that data or that you can capture it, like a stream of it as it happens, and then reconstruct like the whole picture of what has happened external to the system, so to speak. And routing fees are one thing that you could find from that.
0: And so I guess you could figure out a historical balance at a certain point in time. Okay. Based on the history, like record logs, yeah. I had a balance of whatever, 500,000 exactly. sats and whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. It's just a different way of looking at similar data and capturing it in like a different way. I don't know. Um, so the thing I wanted to get back to though is, so there's this really interesting question in accounting about what happens when a penalty transaction happens, right? Right. Okay. Why is that interesting? It's interesting because um, let's say that like, so this like ledger that we have, right? We're writing down every time money moves one direction or the next. Um, And then a penalty transaction is like rolling back to a previous state, right? So like these transactions are still happened, right? So it's like, okay, so there's like, it's like, what do we do in this situation? Um, Technically we've we've either gained money if we've if we're the ones sending out that as you called it the justice transaction and clawing back all of the money, so either we've made some money that we didn't actually earn, <laughs> someone else fucked up or tried to cheat us, <laughs> but we like we have like clawed all of that money. So now we so now magically we have more money than we started with and that isn't in our balance, right? Like what do we do with that? Oh that's interesting. I don't know. Um, or we accidentally published an old transaction, or maybe we tried to cheat. Um, but now we have we used to have a balance in this channel. and Now we don't. It's gone. Um, so, like, the way that I, like, chose is kind of you kind of – well, it's not – anyways. The way that, like, Sea Lightning will handle this is um, we do something called, like, a journal entry that's just, like, hey, you lost money. Or maybe I call it, like, a penalty of, like, you tag them. But the whole thing is – the whole idea is, like, all those previous transactions that you had. Like, let's say you're running a business over your Lightning node, right? And um, – a lot of the money that's been flowing through that channel were like payments you've received for goods. Like you're selling, I don't know, hats over lightning. And so you need, you need, you still need all those records of all those hats that you sold, right? You still need you, and you sold them. There was like evidence of like the money moving, right? Oops. Um, But like, uh, so that all still happened. That doesn't change because you lost money. You've just incurred a loss now. It's like, Someone stole the piggy bank, right? So, um, all that happens, at least in the journal entry ledger thing, is you get a new entry that is like, "You lost X amount of money." I'm sorry, or "Hey, you have just gained like five hundred thousand sets. Congratulations!" You know, um, minus whatever chain fees that you end up paying into that. But um, yeah,
0: let's talk a little bit about uh, the fees that you pay for closing a channel because that's also another cost that you pay, and. That's also a bit of a negotiation aspect, right? Because we have to like figure out what fee rate you and I want to pay between for this channel that you and I have, for example.
1: Yeah, this is actually... So this is a really... So this is cool because it's something we're currently working on and I believe the Lightning Labs team has a... Is it going out in their next release? Um, so there's... Okay, so the fees problem is a real one. Um, the fees problem for like the mutual close that we talked about earlier is not actually that... I don't know. I'm gonna call it hard of a problem, but um, it, you it takes some time for you to figure out a mutually agreeable fee rate, but you can do it, and it's fine. Um, the harder thing is like those commitment transactions that you use for like the unilateral or the penalty case. Um, the problem with that is like if we signed a transaction, so like what if the last commitment transaction I have for you is three years old, a long time ago, and the fee rate has like ten x since then. Um, I'm kind of in like a difficult position because i need that transaction to get so i believe the way that so the way that the time so like there's time locks on my ability to spend the money in that commitment transaction and that timer my understanding is correct i believe this is true the my timer doesn't start until that commitment transaction gets mined so i can't actually create a like So like the typical way that you pull through transactions, um, well, there's two ways you get transactions that have low fee rates mind, right? One is replaced by fee, um, which is where – but that requires a recreation of the transaction, which would require your peer to be online. And as we just discussed, they're disappeared. That's not an option. The other option is called child pays for parent. But in order for that to work, it requires an output – on the transaction that I can attach a valid secondary Bitcoin transaction onto um, and both of these can go into the mempool at the same time. The problem with the current commitment transaction is that the the one output to me, the one that pays me my channel balance, is time-locked, which means that I can't get a child transaction for that output into the mempool because it's invalid until that transaction has been mined for like, X number of blocks however many let's say like nine blocks um so you kind of just have to like public you push out your commitment transaction and just hope that it works right um just been working mostly fine um but lightning labs team has been working on a proposal called anchor outputs which will make it a little bit easier to get stuff mined um because it makes it such that there is always an output that i can spend me as like the person publishing the transaction um yeah and that's like we can talk about that if you want but um yeah it's interesting it actually like so that actually and this is like i actually went back and forth with the lightning labs team a little bit i promised them i would do some like more sorry i'm like trying to sit down um i promised them i'd do some more analysis and i have it on my like to-do list um i was trying to get like our release out but um they're actually like considerably more expensive in like a very certain cases the anchor outputs are, um, and part of the reason, I think I did, like, a, a very naive calculation that they're, like, 5x more expensive than, like, a very cheap, um, which is a lot, like, if depending on how big your channel is, like, 5x, so that was, like, I don't know, maybe it was, like, a thousand sats, I don't know, because, like, right now, it's, like, maybe 200, anyways, like, it's expensive, it's, like, a lot more expensive in, like, certain cases to use the anchor output um, stuff, because it it requires more outputs, and you have to put sats in the outputs so that that's more money that you're paying to get it done. And then child pays for parent actually in the net aggregate increases the number of um, bytes that you're trying to get mined. And since you pay by byte size, um, you pay per byte, right? Like that's what the fee rate is. You are spending more because there's more bytes to be mined because you need both the original transaction plus the child transactions that are pulling it through. Um so, child pays for a parent is more bytes, which means it's more expensive just by nature of whatever. Um, there's some cool stuff that they've added that we didn't talk about them at all. But there's like this really cool subgenre of like topics around commitment transactions called HTLC transactions, um, which we probably should, I don't know, I think we have time to get into that. Um, like, but the cool thing about those is so the cool thing about the anchor outputs is that it actually helps decrease the cost of this like other subsection of transactions you have to pay for in some cases. Anyways.
0: I see. Yeah. So you're talking there about the the routed parts, the HTLCs as opposed to the like direct payments. Is that what you're saying?
1: Yeah. HTLCs are, we didn't talk about these at all. Um, HTLCs are like how money moves through the system, but it's taking me a while to explain it. I think, I don't know.
0: Sure, sure. Um, but did you want to talk about um, dual funded channels now?
1: Oh, we can definitely talk about that. That's like a totally different yeah. set of stuff. But sure, we can definitely talk about it. Oh my god, yeah, let's talk about dual funded channels. Um,
0: so, why would we? Why would that be a good thing?
1: Okay, yeah. So, I think that um, cool. So, I'm gonna start with like the current state of Lightning is that when you open a channel there's two nodes and they're making a single pool that they put their money into, but only one of those nodes has the opportunity to put money in the pool. So this means that when you open a channel, only one person can send payments through it at at start. Um, And in order for it to become like operational for both sides, the person who opened it would have to send payments through it before the other side gets on stuff back. Um, Lightning Labs got around this restriction by allowing more than one channel between two nodes. So if I have, I can open a channel to you and put money in it and then I can send you money that way and then you could open a second channel to me and send money that way. Um, This is kind of inefficient because it takes two transactions. So you're paying the channel fees, you're paying chain fees, you know, to chain fees to the Bitcoin miners. you're paying fees twice, both to open it, and then you're also going to end up paying fees to close it. So your fee burden gets bigger. Um, it also increases the amount of gossip in the network because every new channel that's created creates at least, I want to say, five new gossip messages. Um, so it's inefficient. There's just more gossip. It creates like 2x the gossip that you would need. Also, it makes it such that your, um, your bandwidth is like split. So if I wanted to put 100,000, like or a million sats into a channel and you wanted to also put a million sats into this channel between us, um, at some point, let's say someone wanted to send 1.5 million payment through our through us. And technically, we have two million worth of capacity, but it's split between two channels. Um, you need a secondary mechanism then in order to send that payment through these split channels, which we're getting with like multi parth payments. But um, it's just not as like your stuff's just like a little. It's like I, just, I don't know. I just I think it's a little less efficient. So the solution to allowing nodes to create channels that are um, one solution is to allow at the opening when you're creating the funding transaction to allow both parties to that transaction to contribute funds so that's the whole that's the whole thing that's like that's dual funding both people can put inputs into the pool at the start
0: yep and so what are some of the difficulties around achieving that like what's the you know um, vector on which you know is that a way for you to try and uh, find out all my UTXOs if uh, if you just try and spam it out to everyone and say hey I want to open a channel with you show me one of your UTXOs and then actually you just like run off and say ah see no I know information about you on chain."
1: yes that is definitely one of the biggest I think pieces of pushback or like feedback we've gotten from like you know just people enlightening about the proposal Um, there's some there's some stuff we've added to the proposal that I think really reduces that a lot. Um, I'm trying to like, okay. So the, um, the proposal that we're kind of like working with now or like the most recent thing um, actually comes from join market. I'm going to get that wrong.
0: The puddle. Great. Yeah.
1: The puddle yep. stuff. Yeah. Or poodles or whatever they're called. Um, I guess I get to decide. <laughs> no, I don't know. I think Waxwing gets to decide. Um, but the so the podl stands for proof of discrete log equivalence. Um, and the basic idea behind it is that it proves to someone to like, all right, I wanna so like in a in an open channel negotiation, there's always two parties. Um, the opening party will approach the other person and be like, hey, I would like to open a channel with you. And the other person's like, great, tell me more about what you would like to do. Like, tell me more about this situation. I'm listening. Um, And then the person who's opening it at this point would prove to you that they have a UTXO um, that they can spend and that only they can spend um, by giving, they'd give you like this proof. And it's like, is it a hash? I think it's a hash. Is it a point? Maybe it's a point. It's a hash of a point. It's a hash of a point. <laughs> like, they send you like, basically they send you like this proof um, that at some point in the future, you will be able to verify that it means that they they have the private key to spend a UTXO. You don't know which UTXO it is. Uh, you don't know what the private key is. Um, all you know is that they can prove to you that they can spend a UTXO, Um So they send that to you as part of the opening negotiation. And then you're like, okay, well, you've got a proof and um, cool. Okay, yeah, let's do it. And then so then they send you. So then like you're okay, like let's keep going. Great. Um, Then they send you the information about that UTXO. So this is the opener, right? This is the person who decided they wanted to open the channel. They send you the information that they have about um, that UTXO. Um, which allows you to go and verify that the proof that they sent you is correct. Um, and the proof is that, that they can spend that UTXO. It has to do with the way that the proof of discrete log equivalence works. Um, but basically the only way that you could create the proof was if you had access to the private key that that, that, that UTXO is um, also locked to. Um, And you can prove that, you can figure that out and make sure that they have the private key because if they didn't have the private key, they wouldn't have been able to produce that proof of discrete log equivalence. Um, So this does two things. This makes it such that the only way that you can create a dual funded channel is if you have a UTXO that you can put into it and you can prove that you have a UTXO. So in order for someone to get my UTXO information out of me, they would have to have at least one UTXO somewhere, right? Um, the other thing is that, well, okay, so there's like, and there's like a little bit of verification so I can like kind of check that they at least know how to make a portal. Um, like anyways. <laughs> um, the other thing is that those podals then become something that you gossip around, that you send out to the network and they get gossiped. And so when someone sends you a proof of discrete log equivalence, you can look through the backlog of all the ones that you've gotten from every other node and see if they've tried to use it on any other node before. Um, So that kind of makes it really hard. So, okay, let's say that you wanted to get UTXOs out of like a bunch of nodes, right? So you create a single proof of discrete log equivalence and you send it out to everyone. in theory they're gonna get it they're gonna send it out to all to everyone else on the network and you're gonna see that it got sent out and so you're gonna be like eh. okay so i see you want to open a channel that's great you can open the channel i'm just not going to put anything in it so this is kind of like like so like the failure case here is that the channel still gets opened the person who wanted to open the channel can still open it um but Basically, it gives the other side this like opportunity to opt out of providing an information of their stuff. And that's the cool thing about like dual funding is that there's no requirement that both sides put money in. Um, So if something goes horribly wrong and like your portal gets broadcast everywhere, you could still go to another channel or another node and use that UTXO to open a channel. You just wouldn't be eligible to have the other party put money in. Is a yep, like failure see. case. So the yeah. the failure case in this is like status quo.
0: Yeah, that's pretty good. And so I guess I guess what this is achieving is also stopping somebody from spamming it out to everybody because if they're just trying to spam it out to everyone, the other people will say, hang on, you already used that one before, either Do a do the pay the cost to create a new New UTXO UTXO. and do a new puddle. So basically, it's like an asymmetric defense thing. It's like a it's forcing additional cost onto the attacker who wants to try and figure out oh what's everyone's UTXO, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So it's a cost. It's a costly. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, and uh, a couple other things here. I think um I was reading some uh, Bitcoin Optech on this, and there was some discussion around what values for the free parameters in the transaction so these are like n version and sequence and lock time oh. input and output ordering could mm-hmm. you discuss a little bit of that around what's the implication there why would we want to try and align that in the way that um you know people are doing these transactions
1: yeah so this is like so what you're talking about i think is the so when you create so the opening transaction is a transaction that two parties are both constructing and they're both constructing it kind of so one thing that you do when you create protocol design is you try and minimize the amount of information that you have to exchange with the other party um The reason for that is it's it's less stuff you have to send over the wire. If there's like a bunch of conventions you can agree upon before or like that are just kind of generally known, um, then that's less things that you have to communicate about. And so it makes it just more efficient. Um, This is also why. So um, one of the async contributors, their name is escaping me right now. Um, One of his big questions when we started working on the dual funding proposal is why don't we use um partially signed Bitcoin transactions. So PSBTs. Totally valid question. Um the reason that you wouldn't want to do that though is that as a protocol, like so PSBTs are great for um I think like so PSBTs really filled a much needed gap of wallet-to-wallet interaction. So it became like the when you have like two Bitcoin wallets, how do those wallets interact with each other? And PSBT became the like universal standard of how wallet to wallet interaction happens. And I think that was like super needed, and it's great. Um, I'm really excited about getting PSBTs into Lightning. It's coming, I promise. Um, but like uh, the um, what do you call it? So the but for over the wire communication in a scenario where the sort of transaction that you're trying to create is fairly well-known as like a there's like parameters around what you're trying to create together. Um, having that much information, having to be sent across the wire doesn't make sense because we were in a situation where we are designing exactly what we can like, we can come up with things like, oh, the end sequence number will be exactly like this. Um, which I don't remember what we decided on. I think. I think yeah. like, I think we decided like, so lock time. Anyways, lock time, we're going to mimic what Bitcoin is doing so that it's less or Bitcoin D is doing. Anyways, there's... Right. Yeah.
0: So it looks more closer to that kind of transaction. And I guess yeah. part of the argument there is around, yeah, assuming we do get Schnorr Taproot, that when you do a mutual close, that that would be indistinguishable from a standard Bitcoin transaction. And so the idea is to try and make all of the other bits and pieces about that transaction the same such that it's not giving off a fingerprint that oh hey this is actually a lightning close this is not a standard bitcoin transaction right
1: exactly 100 percent. yeah and so we're trying to apply as much of that as possible to these opening transactions also um yeah and then like so the sequencing um one of the things we want to do with the new um opening transactions so opening transactions you can actually allow for rbf because um Assumingly, your person you're talking to is online because they have to be in order to do the opening thing. So, um, you know, the sequence number would need to be such that RBF is enabled. I think that's like the limit of that though. I think anyways, but right. So you write these things out into the protocol and then when you're creating a transaction, you don't have to communicate them because you already know exactly what they are.
0: Yeah. Also curious, uh, I'm not sure if this is anything you're directly working on, but uh, uh, around hardware wallets, opening the lightning channel and then closing it back into your hardware wallet. Did you have any comments to add on that?
1: Yeah, so this is stuff that I sort of worked. Yeah, I did wait, I did all that. Did I do all that? I think I did all that. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't know. Um the right. So this is a this is definitely a goal of sea lightning. Um there's two things I think that we need in order to make this a reality. Um the first thing is, well, do we really need PSBT? I want PSBT stuff for hardware wallets. I don't know. When everyone's like, hardware wallet, I'm like, yes, we're going to get PSBT. It's going to be great. Um, the second thing that we want, that I think we'll really need in order to make this like work really well, um, is we need to get um, script descriptor support into C Lightning. Um, this is like Andy Chow's project that he's been working on. I believe that um, Bitcoin D, I don't know if his stuff has shipped yet, but there's like this really cool stuff you can do with like script descriptors that allows you to basically like create a, um, it's basically like, so the problem with payouts to hardware wallets currently is that it's hard to define like, a um, maybe it's not that hard, but like the way that you, um, uh, Lisa, words. The, so, like, okay, so, like, the simplest case would be that you provide a single static Bitcoin address. And every time that any money got paid back to the Lightning node, the Lightning node, we would actually pay it to that address. That would be, like, the um, the easy way to do it. The problem with that is then every time that you publish a transaction it has the exact same address on it. So that's, like, not good. Um, so at some point you want to use, like, the um, hierarchical deterministic wallets, like an HD wallet thing um the nice thing about script descriptors is that that allows you to kind of get like this it allows you to create interesting scripts to send to in your hardware wallet so maybe you want your hardware wallet to be sort of vault-like so every time money comes out of the sea lightning thing you want to send it to a script which is vault-like right for example, or maybe it's like your cold storage, whatever, Um, script descriptors let you kind of marry the um, description of the script that you want it to get paid to with like the hardware descriptor um, functionality. So you could tell Lightning this is like the script descriptor for these kinds of transaction outputs. And then we would be able to slot like the next iteration in that like path. Plus the script that you wanted as what you pay out to. I think so I think that's like I think that's like the goal. Like I think that that would be I think that that's like the gold standard of what you should want for a Lightning hardware wallet or external wallet integration is um, like a script descriptor that you can provide for various like close cases or whatever or maybe every close because um, that lets you like use cool scripts, cool scripts like not basic pay to whatever scripts. So give you the flexibility you might want in like an off off wallet whatever um or off chain cold wallet thing um as well as like the rotation that you would need so
0: okay so let me see if i can summarize that hopefully i understood that um so we can think of it like uh, like the output descriptor work that andrew chow is working on in bitcoin core you can you might have a certain derivation path that you want to come into mm-hmm. uh and you might have a certain script type that you want it to be right it might not just be a single single uh single uh signature uh, script it might be a multi-signature and you want you might want it to be because it's like you're not necessarily like when you pay into an address you're also kind of like paying into a script that may unlock it and if you had a more complicated cold storage setup like let's say this is a business who's running sea lightning and they have a two of three multi-sig with a certain derivation path that they want to receive so whenever they close a lightning channel it would go into the next uh index number up on the derivation path for that two of three multi-sig is that have i understood you correctly there i
1: think that's like i might slightly have but i'm Ninety five percent sure that's how these descriptor script the script descriptors work with the path like kind of thing. I think I'm pretty sure because then you can, that's how like yeah because I just set one up on like my Bitcoin wallet that lets me like I say get me the next wallet thing and it sends me the next one based on the script descriptor that I have. So
0: right, it increments it up one further and it takes out. Okay, this is the address to spend into, and then say Lightning when it does the channel close, will spend into that address, and then okay. boom, off you go. Now it's in your hardware wallet or whatever your um cold storage setup is
1: yeah but you need the script descriptors though because it acts like so i was talking earlier acts as like the interface between wallets like you need that as the interface between what you're gonna expect to get out on the other wallet side
0: all right um any other cool things you wanted to tell us about uh you know c lightning or the lightning spec that you're uh, looking at
1: yeah. Um, okay. So I guess briefly before we go, so there's, so I think like, um, so there's two things I'm really excited about aside from dual funding. Cause I get excited about that, but, um, there's two things, other things that I'm excited about that are going on in lightning right now that I think are worth paying attention to. Um, the um, it's a, a kind of category, that, like one of them is like usability and the other one is privacy. Um, so the usability one is, um, I believe, so Lightning Labs just published the spec for something they're calling LSAT, uh, which is a, um, so what I think, so I put this in like the usability category. What I think is really cool about it is it marries um, HTTP with Lightning Payments and it does it really elegantly. Um, and so they've got a really great like, web native um interface or like protocol that they've designed that lets um web developers take advantage of lightning payments um and it's a really i think it's like the really important path forward for um getting making it such that web developers have like this like common language that they understand that they can like code to for integrating with Lightning payment systems. So I think it's awesome. I'm really excited about it. Um, I don't know when it's coming to see Lightning. Hopefully soon. Like, Got to get some stuff shipped, but hopefully we'll get that done because um, I think it's just incredible. Like, I think it's really great. Um, the other thing that I'm really excited about is a privacy improvement. Um, it's the Blinded past project that um, TBAST Bastion Tinturnier and Rusty from Sea Lightning, so that's the async team and Sea Lightning team, have been working on. Um, what's really cool about that is that when, so right now, when you share an invoice with someone, um, it exposes who the destination node is. So um, there's services like, uh, I think like Jack Mahler's um, Zap Strike. Strike wallet, I believe, requires you sharing your invoice with like a central server. Um, and like, so async is interested in this problem because they tend to do, I think, similar stuff for their Phoenix stuff. I don't, don't quote me on that. I'm not 100% sure. But, um, what's cool about blinded pass is it allows you to create invoices where the in destination is, um, blinded. So you can't tell where that payment is going to, um, which allows you to, revi- like, to, it's good for two reasons. One, it keeps your information private so no one knows who you're paying, um, the other thing that's good about it is that it, um, it makes it such that these payment services, like the strike thing that Mahler has been working on, um, doesn't have any – so if the government came knocking on their door and said, hey, we would like to look at all of your information, um, they legitimately don't have any valuable information to give you because you never gave them any valuable information. Like they don't have to worry about like – deleting all the invoices they've ever gotten on a weekly schedule, just so that when someone comes knocking, they don't have anything. Um, they legitimately like just don't have any information, um, which is similar kind of if, I don't know if you keep up with like signal, the messaging app. I think they have a very similar kind of um, approach to privacy, which is that like, we just don't keep any information on our servers that we could, you know, we could hand them everything and it would be like nothing. So yeah. Um, Anyways, so, like, I, yeah, yeah, So those are the two things in Lightning that are going on right now that I'm, I'm very yeah. excited about,
0: yeah. With Blinded Paths, is that intended or is it related to an alternative to trampoline routing or is it related?
1: No, that's a good question. I don't know the answer to that.
0: <laughs> no worries, that's all right. Um, because I, I understand, as I understand, the Async guys were really interested in trampoline riding because it also helps them from the privacy point of view of like you not knowing them not knowing who you're paying. So it's-
1: yeah. yeah. I think you can put them together, right? So you could have a blinded path to a trampoline. It's like a, so like the trampoline, the whole idea behind trampoline, if I understand correctly, is that um, the idea is that you specify an end destination. So maybe there is some exposure of where you're trying to get exactly, but um, you don't know the exact route to get there. So you would send it to a route. You'd send it to a node that presumably would know how to get there. And then you indicate to them where the next place you want to go is. Um, Blinded path, I believe you already have to have the route calculated.
0: I see. So, okay, I got you. So you would still need to, your node still has to have its own view of the network. And, you know, that might be a bit more difficult for say, a mobile, right?
1: Yeah, but don't, Well, so the blinded path thing is that instead, so with an invoice right now, the path is calculated by the node that gets the invoice, so they do need to have the route graph. The blinded path, you don't, the node is calculated by the, don't quote, I might be wrong about this, but I believe that in the blinded path, the route has already been calculated by the node sending the invoice so that the node that gets it doesn't have to calculate the path because they already... They just know it. It's already included, I
0: think. Ah, uh, okay. And okay, I cool.
1: That. I don't know. The thing with the blinded path. that, like, now that I'm thinking about, it, I have a question about, I'm not 100% sure, is how do you – well, I guess you could sign it. I was going to say, how do you know that the node that sent it to you, that's the correct path? Like, what if someone, like, got in the man in the middle, attacked and put a different blinded path in there, All right? right? So then pay you, this one instead. Yeah, <laughs> but I think that – I, th- I believe that invoices are signed. Like, so – Signed, so you can verify that the data with the blinded path is what the person who issued the um, invoice wanted. So I think that's fine. I think you're covered. Anyways, but interesting stuff.
0: Okay. Well, look, I think I've I've, I think it's been a very uh, educational chat for me. I've definitely uh, learned a bit more about uh, channel accounting. Lisa, where can people find you online?
1: Um. Yeah. Great. I am on Twitter at nifty n e i. So at nifty n i. Um. I also, I haven't been Twitch streaming very much lately because I'm very lazy, but sometimes I Twitch stream and my Twitch channel is twitch.tv slash nifty nye. Um, I also run the also not very well updated, um, sea lightning Twitter account. Um, I'd sea lightning C O M I T. I couldn't get the second M in there for reasons.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I think you had a good thread on there a little while ago as well, explaining, um, a bunch of stuff in sea lightning so uh, we I'll, I'll include a link for that in the oh, show notes great, yeah. for the listeners who are interested um but oh. uh yeah thank you very much for joining me lisa
1: great thanks stefan
0: if you guys enjoyed the show don't forget to leave a review on itunes and subscribe on youtube find the show notes and the transcript at stefanlevera.com slash 168 thanks for listening and i'll see you in the citadels